0: For our scripture reading this morning, we turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, Deuteronomy 32. This is considered to be Song of Moses, his final words to the children of Israel before the Lord calls him home. Deuteronomy 32, we'll read the first 47 verses. Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as the rain, my speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass. Because I will publish the name of the Lord, Ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. They have corrupted themselves, their spot is not the spot of his children, they are a perverse and crooked generation." Do ye thus requite the Lord, O foolish people and unwise? Is not he thy father that hath bought thee? Hath he not made thee and established thee? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask thy father, and he will show thee. Thy elders, and they will tell thee. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when He separated the sons of Adam, He set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel, for the Lord's portion is His people. Jacob is the lot of His inheritance. He found him in a desert land, in the waste-howling wilderness. He led him about, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. As the eagle stirreth up her nest, fluttereth over her young, spreadeth abroad her wings, taketh them, beareth them on her wings, so the Lord alone did lead him, and there was no strange God with him. He made him ride on the high places of the earth, that he might eat the increase of the fields. And he made him to suck honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock, butter of kine and milk of sheep with fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan, and goats with the fat of kidneys of wheat. And thou didst drink the pure blood of the grape. But Jeshurun waxed fat and kicked Thou art waxen fat, Thou art grown thick, Thou art covered with fatness. Then he forsook God, which made him, and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations provoked they him to anger. They sacrificed unto devils, not to God to gods whom they knew not, to new gods that came newly up, whom your fathers feared not. Of the rock that begat thee, thou art unmindful, and hast forgotten God that formed thee. And when the Lord saw it, He abhorred them because of the provoking of His sons and of His daughters. And He said, I will hide My face from them. I will see what their end shall be. For they are a very froward generation, children in whom is no faith. They have moved me to jealousy that, with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities, and I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled in mine anger, and shall burn unto the lowest hell and shall consume the earth with their increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap mischiefs upon them. I will spend my arrows upon them. They shall be burnt with hunger and devoured with burning heat and with bitter destruction. I will also send the teeth of beasts upon them with the poison of serpents of the dust. The sword without and terror within shall destroy both the young man and the virgin, the suckling also with the man of gray hairs. I said, I would scatter them into corners. I would make the remembrance of them to cease from among men, were it not that I feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should behave themselves strangely, and lest they should say, Our hand is high, and the Lord hath not done all this. For they are a nation void of counsel, neither is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. How should one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight, except their rock had sold them and the Lord had shut them up? For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges, for their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall, their clusters are bitter, their wine is the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me and sealed up among my treasures? To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. For the Lord shall judge his people, and repent himself or his servants, when he seeth that their power is gone, and there is none shut up or left. And he shall say, Where are their gods, their rock in whom they trusted? which did eat the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you and be your protection. See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven, and say, I live forever. If I wet my glittering sword and mine hand take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies and will reward them that hate me. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh, and that with the blood of the slain and of the captives, from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy." Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. And Moses came and spake all the words of this song in the ears of the people, he and Hosea, the son of Nun. And Moses made an end of speaking all these words to all Israel. And he said unto them, Set your hearts unto all the words which I testify among you this day, which ye shall command your children to observe, to do, all the words of this law. For it is not a vain thing for you, because it is your life. And through this thing ye shall prolong your days in the land, whither ye go over Jordan to possess it. We read that far in God's Word. Consider this morning the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 34. And we, we will read questions and answers 94 and 95 now. What doth God enjoin in the first commandment? That I, as sincerely as I desire the salvation of my own soul... Avoid and flee from all idolatry, sorcery, soothsaying, superstition, invocation of saints or any other creatures, and learn rightly to know the only true God. Trust in Him alone. With humility and patience submit to Him. Expect all good things from Him only. Love, fear, and glorify Him with my whole heart so that I renounce and forsake all creatures rather than commit even the least thing contrary to his will. What is idolatry? Idolatry is, instead of or beside that one true God who has manifested himself in his word, to contrive or have any other object in which men place their trust. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we preach now, using the Heidelberg Catechism, on the law of God. And we do so in faithfulness to our Lord Jesus Christ, to the apostolic faith, and to the Reformed faith. We do that without fear, without shame, but we also do it with understanding. There are, when we consider the law of God, two looming and large dangers that have always faced the child of God when he considers the law of God. The first is that we view the law, and we receive the law, and we consider the law as something that when we do, makes us righteous. That notion has been removed and rejected from our mind by the catechism itself, when it makes clear, only a few Lord's days earlier, that we are righteous by faith alone without works, without any works, without any consideration of works. And following that statement is even the statement that our works, even real, true, good works, have no part. They're not the whole, and they're not even a part of our righteousness now there is one reason for that there's more but there's one reason for that and that is because we learned that righteousness you either have or you don't have its like a light switch like a binary number it's either a zero or a one it's either on or it's off you either have it or you don't it's either 100 percent righteous There's no such thing as 99.9% righteous. You are either righteous or unrighteous. This is not only a truth that one cannot, cannot obtain, cannot merit, cannot have grounded his righteousness in his works according to the law. That is evident not only as truth, something taught, But the law itself makes plain that's true. The law itself makes plain that righteousness by keeping the law is impossible. So we have to keep that in mind. We are righteous by faith. The second thing that must be kept in mind is being righteous by faith that is, being saved by grace through faith alone, does not eliminate the law as the rule for a thankful life, does not eliminate the law as a requirement, does not remove the preaching of the law as a requirement. Regardless of what Scripture says, and it says much about our relationship to the law now, it says that we are dead to the law. It says that we are no longer under the law, but under grace. That all of the law is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the end or the fulfillment of the law. That whatever that means does not mean that we do not preach it. And we certainly do not minimize it, especially out of a fear that, well, maybe you may attempt to attain righteousness by the law. There, too, we must have faith, faith that the children of God will not do that, and if they do, they will repent of that foolishness. Here, too, we will show the importance of this and demonstrate that from the law itself. But right now, it will suffice us simply to show that it's obvious. Simply look at your Heidelberg Catechism. And ask yourself, what was our Father's view with regard to the law and the preaching of the law? Number one, they make clear that what we are preaching on is a preaching concerning what it is to be converted. What it is to be a Christian. It establishes what a Christian is, how he behaves, what he looks like. In fact, it's even defining what good works are, since good works are those that are not founded on the imagination or institutions of men, but performed only by faith and according to the law of God. Consider how the Catechism also will end its instruction on the law of God by teaching that these commandments are to be strictly preached, even though no man in this life can keep them. And even though even the holiest of men have only a small beginning of the new obedience. With these things in mind, beloved, let's look at this first commandment under the theme, having no other God. Having no other God. And we consider just two things. First, the commandment, and the second is the blessed life. The abiding commandment and the blessed life. In my first point, I want to look at this particular commandment generally, and generally as it applies to all the other commandments and to the law itself. The very first thing that we should see and should be evident to us as we consider the first commandment is God's attitude toward all the commandments and God's attitude toward the preaching of the commandments and God's expectation of us in the preaching of those commandments. <clears throat> As I said, regardless of what Scripture says, and it says much about our relationship to the law, even establishes a break in that relationship. In Romans 7, it has many things to say, and yet the interpretation, the understanding of those things may never be apart from the law of God itself. In other words, the law of God itself establishes even the right understanding of our relationship to the law and obligations toward the law in Christ. In other words, this very first commandment, considered all by itself, teaches us so very much. The first thing that it teaches us is this, that this commandment is abiding, it is permanent. It is never abrogated. It is never set aside. Not outside of Christ. Not inside of Christ. Not with Christ or without Christ. No one. No one. No one here. No one outside of here may say God does not require us to have no other gods beside Him. There's many things that are said by the law, about the law. Many things, especially within the church, those I concentrate upon. I don't concentrate upon what the ungodly say about the law of God. We know what they think. They, along with the devil, are united in their condemnation of the law, in their setting aside the law, in their abhorrence of the law of God. And if there's one thing that ought to be evident about the society in which we live and God's attitude toward that world and what is coming regard to the judgments of God, then realize that everything that you see about you is an attempt to overthrow the first commandment. Oh yes, we can look at the world and the ungodly and see how they overthrow All the commandments. Surely one can see the truth of what Scripture says about man in his natural state apart from Christ is a lawbreaker, a rebel. But keep in mind that everything, whether it's a sin against the 8th commandment, the 7th commandment, the 6th commandment, or the 10th commandment, is an attack upon the 1st commandment. Man will not have God alone man will always have other gods before God but that's not our concern this morning as such our concern is what we think and what we say about the law of God as redeemed regenerated and believing Christians and if you think the Bible has nothing to say about that consider that in the very same passages, for example, Romans 6 and 7, where some almost shocking things are said about the law of God, that we are no longer under the law, that we are dead to the law, there are other things said that uphold the law and should be expected to be said, even if they weren't said explicitly they would be implied. All one has to do is look at the first commandment and ask yourself this question. Would God would God send His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins of violating these commandments, which are our sins? And keep in mind our chief sin is this first commandment. You may imagine that your chief sin has to do with the other commandments, but our chief sin in Adam is a rejection of the first commandment. There's a reason it's first. But ask yourself now, what God, who is that God, who is the very God whom Moses talks about, the God who has redeemed us, The God who has given birth to us, who has created us. The God whom God Himself says in Isaiah, I carried you in the womb. You don't carry me, I carry you. Would that God now, draw a line to that first commandment. In other words, does all that manifestation of God's grace and His mercy, does that salvation of God make that commandment now To be absolved, to be abrogated. Would that God now say, it's okay to have other gods beside me? Is that the message of the gospel, even in Deuteronomy 32? And if you don't think Deuteronomy 32 preaches the gospel, guess again. The fact is, that it's exactly because God is who He is. And God is who He is as our Redeemer and our Savior. Is our God, as the very introduction to the law makes clear, I am the Lord thy God who brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage we may put that in New Testament language, I am the Lord thy God, who in Jesus Christ has redeemed you from all your sins and released you from the bondage of sin and death. Does that God now say the first commandment is worship whoever you want? I don't care. And it doesn't matter since you're redeemed and saved. Or, or is that first commandment, even if I may put it that way, More established, made more important, even more a requirement. And the answer is the latter. The obligation on the child of God, redeemed and saved in Jesus Christ, to have only that God and only that God is a far greater demand, if we may speak that way, than what comes upon the ungodly who reject Him as God. So away with any nonsense that preaching the law of God is antithetical to the gospel. Or that one can preach the gospel even separate from, distinct from, even divided from the law of God. And if you doubt me on that, We will look in our second point on what God requires. Number two, if there's one thing the first commandment makes clear and is a reason why it's first, it's this, what I said in my introduction, that you and I, even as regenerated, redeemed children of God who have the very spirit, of Christ living in us cannot keep the law perfectly and when I say that I don't mean we could keep it 99 percent of the time and then there's this one little few times here and there we don't but you don't in anything that you do and there's no part of you that doesn't keep the law perfectly the first commandment makes that clear and if we're going to be honest which is what's required of a christian honesty faith is honest the first commandment makes it clear more than any other commandment in other words it's even conceivable that one could possibly keep the other commandments it's not but we could conceive of that but you won't keep the first one it's impossible and it's not even possible for you to keep it when you're engaged in the most worshipful, loving, knowing, keeping of that commandment, if I'm going to put it that way. In other words, even when you're keeping this commandment, you can't keep it. It sounds like an oxymoron, but it's true. Simply look at the activities in which we keep this commandment to its fullest which would take us out of the realm of our everyday earthly life, although the commandment isn't abrogated there either. But let's go to worship. Let's go to prayer. Let's imagine ourselves in prayer to God. And here we are before God, truly by faith, coming to Him and imploring His grace, coming to Him for what we need, coming empty. And you will discover that what God enjoins in the first commandment is not there as it ought to be. Oh, sure, we're going to God, and we can say we're coming in the true knowledge of God as the only one true God, but are we coming trusting in Him alone? Really? Or do we trust mainly in Him, but our heart is still trusting in all kinds of other things? Are we submitting to Him? Even in prayer. Oh yes, we can make a prayer that so and so get better or this change in my life according to Thy will. But secretly in our heart we're hoping that's not the case. I don't know what I would do if God would not grant my request. Or when God doesn't. We no sooner say Amen and our heart is filled with bitterness because we know God is not granting what we want. Do we really expect all good things from Him only? Or do we go elsewhere for good things? We get some good things from God, certain good things from God, but if we really want good things, other good things, why? We gotta go here and we gotta go there, we gotta spend this kind of money, we gotta go through these kind of motions, spend our energy over here, and then, and then, and then we, we, yeah, then we have good. In other words, we have to supplement what God gives. How often is it even in prayer, as we're praying to God, we're ignorant of all the good that He has given. We make our prayers, thanks for this, thanks for that, but our mind is so far from all the things we ought to be thankful for, which is exactly why, If someone were to ask you, so how often do you spend in prayer? The answer is going to be along the lines of not much or not as much as I should. Why is that? Because that's how much of the new obedience you have when it comes to the first commandment. And why, even in prayer and in worship, it ought to be impossible for a child of God to lift up the prayer of the Pharisee, oh Lord, I'm thankful I'm not like other men. I'm thankful I'm not like those other people out there in the world. I'm thankful I'm not like this church and denomination over there. And I'm certainly glad I'm not like that poor publican over there in the pew. The first commandment exposes us, exposes us point-blank as sinners. Which, then in the third place, shows that the only possibility of keeping the commandment, whether in whole or part, is by faith. That's the only possibility there is. In other words, when you consider this commandment, have no other gods before me, it is impossible to do that as a Christian without faith. And if one does it without faith, one doesn't know the God whom he is worshiping and serving. And one will certainly then have other gods. If one truly knows who he is before God, then the only way to have God as your God is to believe that he is already your God. It is to believe that he is already your God in Jesus Christ, by redeeming you from your sin, that He is your God who has made you righteous in Christ alone, not by your pitiful prayers and going to church and all the other good works you do. Is that clear? The first commandment makes that clear. And understand then, too, that's why the commandment is so important. How in the world can you consider the first commandment? Have no other gods before me without considering who the me is. That's what God brings to the people time and time and time again, especially in their idolatry. You foolish people, why are you putting all your trust in all these other gods? Why do you have idols in your backyard? Why are there idols over here in Jerusalem in this little alley? Why are there idols here and there and everywhere else? And we may put that in New Testament language. Why do you have so many idols in your home? I don't, Reverend. Yes, you do. You can't tell me your home is free from idols. Home is full of idols. We have to recognize it. Ask yourself, what do you love? Where do you spend your money? What do you spend it on? Compare how much money you put in the collection plate. Oh, we put a lot of money in the collection plate, don't we? we? Spend a lot of money on Christian school tuition, don't we? Yes, we do. How does it compare to all the money you spend on yourself? We throw ten bucks in the collection plate twelve hours after we spend a hundred bucks feeding ourselves in a restaurant. If we're deprived of a vacation. If we're deprived of a new car every now and then. Why? The Lord's mistreating us. He's not being good to us. Lose our job for a while. We fall to pieces. We don't know what's going on. Let there be sickness and disease. And we run around scared to death. Oh, we might die. Yes, you might die. What's the problem with that? Scared of eternal life? Don't want to be freed from your sin and iniquity? The world mean that much to you? How much time do you spend accumulating the world's goods? Well, we can, you know. They're not cursed. Yes, that's true. But you accumulate them like they're not going to be burned. They're not going to be gone. You can't take them with you. You can't really pass them on to your kids. They just misuse them. Leads them away from God. Are we going to stand here this morning and look at this law of God and say, "Oh, Oh, we're so much better than everyone else. Yeah, those Israelites, they had their gods. Can you believe it? They worshiped the golden calves, but not us. We don't do that. Oh, yes, we do. And this is the commandment we violate more than all the rest. You want to know why a man steals? You want to know why a man commits adultery? You want to know why a man murders his neighbor? The answer is because he violates the first commandment. That's why. The answer is because he's made himself an idolater. That's why. This commandment is first, beloved, because it governs everything else. It's first because you couldn't possibly keep even the least of the commandments if you don't keep this one. How in the world are you going to keep the second, the third, and the fourth commandment if you don't have God as your only God? And you cannot love the neighbor unless you love God. If you think, you can guess again. In fact, you may even say this. If ever I or this church would preach to you, and this is easy to happen, your obligations towards your neighbor, and make that almost exclusive. Make that the emphasis. You know, we need to love our neighbor. That's an important commandment. It's a commandment repeated time and time again, even by Jesus Christ Himself. That law might be, may not be abrogated either. But if you don't see that commandment in the light of the commandment to love God, you will not love your neighbor rightly. Then when your neighbor's walking in sin, you're going to keep your mouth shut, which you may not do. And when your children are walking in sin, you won't discipline them because it's too hard. You see, this even governs our attitude toward our neighbor and how we walk with our neighbor and what real love is. There's all kinds of people in the church who imagine they're loving their neighbor. Oh, how they love their wife and they love their children and they actually hate them because they have all kinds of other gods before God. Notice also what God is saying in this commandment. When God says, have no other gods before me, He means, worship me exclusively. It does not mean you may have some other little, small, tiny gods. And that's okay as long as God is first. That's not what before me means. It does not mean, make sure that I'm just number one among all your gods. Before me refers to before God's face. In other words, you can have a god. And it's so small, it fits in your pocket. Call a cell phone. Oh, you don't worship your cell phone? Add up the minutes. Add up the minutes you spend staring at that phone. And then compare it to how many minutes you spend looking at the Word of God and tell me you're not an idolater. Tell me. Who dares stand up and say I'm not? But now, when you look at that commandment, and you look at what God is saying in that commandment, you have to understand that God is saying, I'm it. And if you have one, whether it's hidden in your pocket or in your closet, whether it's tucked away in your bank account where you think it's safe, I see it. I see it. I see it when you come to me in your prayers. I see it when you come to church. If you think that you can have these other gods and then you just leave them behind for a few hours when you come to church, guess again. I see it. I see before my eyes when you come and you give me a pitiful amount of your time and then on Monday it's back to everything you. God says, no. There will be no other gods except me. Now, if we look at the commandment in more detail, we'll see again why God cannot and does not get rid of the commandments. And rather, we must see that our salvation consists of God sanctifying us so that we do keep the commandments, now only in part, but perfectly in the future. In other words, One of the amazing things that happens in Jesus Christ is the law actually becomes a promise. I want you to dwell on that. I want to point out to you that the first commandment sets forth what all the commandments are. They are the life of the child of God. They are not the means by which you obtain that life, that you earn and merit that life, but they are that life. Ask yourself, what is the life of a child of God? What does it look like? And if you can't imagine it now, then let's go to heaven together. Let let's go stand in a new creation where we're completely new without any sin and our flesh is gone and the flesh that we have has been resurrected. And ask yourself, what does that life look like? What will it be? Will it be more of this working every day to stay alive? worrying about sickness and death, chasing this idol and that idol? No. The perfection of heaven is that you will have God as your God and your God alone. You see, the first commandment is describing the will of God for us, what He has in store for us, what He has redeemed us for, the end, the goal of your redemption It is not that you are redeemed so you can have now all kinds of other gods. And God can't do anything about it. But God has redeemed you so that you have only Him as God. You see, it's setting forth the blessed Christian life of fellowship with God. It's what it consists of. And if you doubt me on that, let's go to the catechism and let's look. Number one, if you look at what God enjoins. In other words, what is God really saying when He says, have me? Have me. What does that word have mean? You may summarize everything that's said as worship. Look at it. Worship. You can summarize them all as worship. What is it to learn rightly to know the only true God? That is worship. Now, that knowledge is the knowledge of love, which is why love is mentioned. But ask yourself, where more than any other place do we learn rightly the one true God? And the answer is when we worship. When we worship together. And all worship is really the teaching of God rightly. Anything that doesn't do that isn't worthy of the name worship. What is it to trust in God alone? Well, number one, that's faith. Remember what I said? You couldn't possibly keep the commandments except by faith. You keep them by faith. Keeping the commandments is the fruit of faith. If you want proof of that, what God enjoins in the first commandment is that you trust in Him alone. That's faith. That's how we define faith. Faith is trust. But notice that's worship. Whom you trust, you worship. And whom you worship, you trust. Trust. With humility and patience, submit to Him. Surely it's talking about our entire life there. But is it worship, the greatest act of humility before God? Isn't there where more than any other we lay ourselves down on the ground before God, submitting to His will? Even there, by the way. You tell me how you can submit to God without submitting to the will of His law. Tell me how you can do that. The person that says they're submitting to God and thumbs their nose at God's law, says it really doesn't matter how I live, isn't submitting to God. It's plain and simple. To love, fear, and glorify Him. Fear is actually the word we use for worship. You see, it's setting forth that that is primarily having God alone is, to worship Him. But don't forget, the converse is also true. The commandment here, you will notice, isn't referring to corporate worship. I can, and you can, but it's talking about your life, your personal life. Notice this is all personal. It's not talking to the church here. It's not being expounded to the church. It's expounded to the individual. And it's setting forth what the life of the individual is. And that's how you should look at your life. Your life is not, well, I worship God for a couple hours on Sunday, and then the rest of the day it's all about me. Because if you think that way and you live that way, pretty soon you won't be worshiping God on Sunday either. You might be showing up for an hour, and then the rest of the time it's skiing and playing ball and doing all kinds of other stuff. Ask yourself, how did churches get there? That's because they didn't understand the relationship to the first commandment and their own particular life. Our entire life is about worshiping God. God and here we need to be tough on ourselves because you need to ask the real question how am I worshiping God in this activity there's a lot of activities we may legitimately engage in I'm not gonna set forth what you may and may not do but you must ask yourself now how am I learning rightly to know God in this activity? How am I showing that I trust in Him? How am I living patiently before Him? How am I loving and fearing and glorifying Him in this particular activity? Shopping. Playing ball. Going on vacation. You see, it's just not a Sunday activity. We don't just give ourselves to God on Sunday. That's not what God requires. That's not what He's setting forth for us. It's with my whole heart. And notice there too that these are all matters of the heart. We know God in our mind which is an aspect of the heart we may say. We trust in our heart. We submit in the heart. You love in the heart. You fear in the heart. You glorify in the heart. Now the good thing is the amazing thing is, is that we can be doing a lot of things with our hands and feet and still be glorifying God in our heart. And as hard as I am upon us, because we need to be that. We need to be humble before God and admit our idolatry. On the other hand, we probably keep this commandment far more than we realize. How often is not it can happen when we're laying on our bed Maybe we forgot our prayers before bed, but we're laying in bed and our thoughts are upon God. God's direction of our life. How God is leading us. We look about us and around the world and we see what God is doing and what God has done and we're glorifying God. We can have tears in our eyes because God has laid a sore affliction upon us. But when we patiently and humbly submit to Him, God is glorified. God even sanctifies that work. Even though sometimes with our tears and our patient submission to God may be some bitterness. Why me? I don't deserve this. Because we come by faith, believing in Christ, believing the forgiveness of sins, believing we are righteous in Him. God forgives those sins. God receives that Worship, And the point of this, beloved, is this is the way of blessing. And you have to understand what we mean by that. It's not like if I do these things as a requirement, now God gives me blessing. But the idea is that's the way of blessedness. That's the way that God blesses. Those are the things that God blesses. We are blessed When we rightly know God. It's not that we know God, oh, so we've kept the commandment, and God says, oh, check, oh, now I will bless that person. But no, that's the way of blessedness. To know God, according to John 17.3, is eternal life. It doesn't obtain eternal life. It doesn't get you eternal life. It is eternal life. That's blessedness. Look about you. Look in the world. For all their supposed fun. No matter what they say about how much fun it is. Come join us. Why? You'll be happy. You'll be blessed. Things will be grand if you do do this or that. If you get more money and a bigger house and a larger car and a different wife and better children, things will be grand. All a lie. Are they blessed? Is any of them blessed? The answer is no. They're cursed. They're cursed. They could have the whole world, whole world, and they will lose their soul. This is the way of blessedness. The way of blessedness is to submit to God. His way is best. It's always best. Who are you going to trust? I don't care if that doctor and surgeon is the most intelligent, smartest guy in the whole world. Who made that man? Who gave him that knowledge? And what does he know? He simply knows the things that God has made. Who that you can love that will love you more than God, that has loved you more than God. You see? You see not only how that is the blessed life that is the blessed life of fellowship with God, but why God says what He says, and why this is His first word to us, and His will, have no other gods before me. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, forgive the many gods we have put up in our homes, and in our minds, and in our hearts, Give us the courage and the faith to throw them out, to put them away, to stop trusting in them. Give us faith, Lord, to trust in Thee, to love Thee, to serve Thee, to follow Thee with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we long for that day when that will be perfected. Hear our prayer, O Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.